This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. I want to introduce the speaker. Uh, professor Charles Mercer is from Yale University. He is a professor of American Studies uh, focused on film and theater and media studies. And um, he uh, has um, uh, published many books um, um, and um, is specialized on the American uh, cinema world uh, with his first book, <laughs> The Emergence of Cinema, um, The American Screen uh, to 1907, which was published in 1990, and um, uh, a title that maybe has is ringing bells before the Nickelodeon, um, and um, various other titles that also deal with the American African American experience. Uh, he's also a uh, documentary filmmaker and has done a number of things that are really contributing uh, to the history of film in America. And I want to give this over to Professor Charles Mercer. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank. And, and I just want to also thank Susan Hillman, Deborah Hertz, for uh, bringing me here uh, today, uh, inviting me to give this presentation really on the complexities of uh, cinematic adaptation, specifically the ways in which The Jazz Singer is a secret remake of uh, the German film, The Ancient Law, Daryl Tegest, uh, and uh, in which the son of a rabbi leaves the shuttle and becomes a Shakespearean actor in the 19th century Vienna. It's also about the need, I think, to avoid bad cultural history and so rescue Al Jolson from an unjust characterization as a deeply and profound racist. And uh, this is sort of, uh, I think, a quote to start off with from the black press, the New York uh, Amsterdam News, that uh, it seems superfluous to say anything about Al Jolson. He's beyond all doubt one of the world's greatest entertainers. He's the one white man who performs blackface in such a manner that every colored performer is proud of him. Of course, Deborah and uh, her colleagues have their own interests around these two films, uh, questions of assimilation anti-Semitism and racism in Germany, as well as the United States, topics which uh, I'm far from an expert on, so it's really fortunate that we have a panel uh, to conclude uh, this talk, so I look forward to that. This image, uh, of course, is from The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson. Usually considered the first talkie, it was the first feature film to use synchronous sound in which the actors talked and sang. It was a huge hit in the United States, and Al Jolson's first words on camera, you ain't heard nothing yet, has often been seen as emblematic of what was to follow so far as American cinema is concerned. And yet one cannot but acknowledge that this film has become a bad object for both serious film scholars and the general public. It's a film, I think, that's worth our attention uh, and reassessment. The Jazz Singer has become demonized as a racist text, and watching it has become the guiltiest and most problematic of pleasures. When an 80th anniversary DVD set was released, Entertainment Weekly's Steve Daly savaged the film, remarking that there's an ugly stereotype under wraps here. 
for Jolson has spent a significant portion of his of, of jazz singer in blackface, masquerading as an African American man, that is, as a grotesque, degrading approximation of one. In the process, he blundered his own racial heritage, a term used freely at the time to discuss Jewish identity, by assuming the trappings of another. The gimmick helped make him a recording superstar and pigeonholed him forever inside an indefensible minstrel show tradition. At the end of his review, Daly concluded, Thankfully, history has moved beyond this movie and its attitudes. How sobering to be reminded that something so wrong could ever have been so popular. Of course, uh, we have the governor of Virginia uh, finding himself in in deep water for having worn blackface when he was in medical school. So it uh, continued uh, for much longer than many of us had thought. However popular and reductive, Daly's review echoes the point of view of Michael Rogan's devastating analysis of the film and his renowned study, Blackface, White Noise. Although there's much that's interesting in Rogan's analysis, in the end, it's not only symptomatic, a symptomatic psychoanalytic reading of the film, it's a hysterical one, and sometimes contradictory and even wrong. The jazz singer Rogan declared, does, not, does no favor to blacks. The black-faced jazz singer is neither a jazz singer nor black. Just as Birth of a Nation offers a regeneration through violence, so the grinning jazz singer minstrelsy kills blacks with kindness. Likewise, Rogan's assertion that the film fails to acknowledge many of the realities of Jewish life leads to him to conclude that anti-Semitism is the jazz singer's structuring absence. The visible cost it leaves behind is borne by Jolson as he plays not a Jew but a black. Moreover, the jazz singer blacks out the non-Jewish group behind the black mask. The lips that speak Jack's personal voice are caricatured racist icons. The jazz singer rises by putting on the mask of a group that must remain immobile, unassimilable, and fixed at the bottom. As a result of Rogan's litany of outrages, the jazz singer has come to be seen as a concentrated expression of American racism in Hollywood movies. Given Rogan's assessment, we might reasonably ask, how the jazz singer and Al Jolson were received in the black community. After all, the black press was quite sophisticated and vigilant uh, to the degree that was possible when it came to the issues of race and representation in the 1920s and 1930s. As I've already hinted in the epigraph to this talk, Al Jolson and the jazz singer were were embraced by black newspapers and moviegoers in the late 1920s. When top-end black theaters converted to sound, which was usually in 1928, the jazz singer was almost always the first feature-length talkie to be shown. In Washington, D.C., advertisements for the Republic Theater declared that the jazz singer on the Vitaphone was being held over for a second great week in April of 1928. The The holdover occurred because no picture ever shown has gained the favorable comments, such as the jazz singer has during its run at the Republic. Young and old alike have expressed their enthusiasm in tears and laughter as the jazz singer unfolds its great story. To see and to hear Al Jolson sing and talk is a thrill that perhaps comes once in a lifetime. For your own comfort, attend the matinee shows if possible so as to avoid the night crowds. Least this be dismissed as ballyhoo, uh, a short article by Felix Walker in the same paper went, Each performer of the jazz singer rouses the audience to wide outbursts of enthusiasm expressed by tears, laughter, or cheers. It's unique, tremendous, unforgettable. Four weeks later, the Republic Theater offered a return engagement that lasted a full week at a time when the venue showed most films for only two or three days. The Singing Fool, 
The Singing Fool, Jolson's next film, also had a two-week run. After many thousands couldn't get in the Republic to see this picture during its first week's engagement. In Philadelphia, the Vitaphone sound version was shown at the Royal Theater in June of 1928, followed by Jolson in The Singing Fool at the Pearl Theater in February of 1929. The two were brought back for an Al Jolson week in April of 1929, including a midnight show on Sunday night of The Jazz Singer. This was done owing to the insistent public demand. Not only had The Jazz Singer created a sensation that had never been equaled by the picture of this type, but The Singing Fool broke all records when last shown at the Pearl, and thousands were unable to gain admission to see the famous singing and talking success. This enthusiasm was not just a response to a new technological marvel, that of talking pictures. Jolson had repeatedly collaborated with musicians, singers, writers, and so forth from the African-American community. He had discovered Garland Anderson, who wrote the first full-length drama by an African-American on Broadway. The process of discovery also involved providing financial support and promoting Garland to his friends in the theater world. He also discovered the band leader, Eddie Elkins, whom he brought, to LA, brought from L.A. to New York. Although Jolson did not play a black character in The Jazz Singer, he did this in the musical comedy Big Boy. As the jockey Gus, he encountered repeated efforts to prevent him from racing in the Kentucky Derby, foregrounding the racial exclusion that black jockeys were increasingly faced, increasingly faced at that time. According to the New York Times, the ro- most remarkable scene of this hugely successful big boy was when Jolson sang spirituals with members of a black choir. Not only did the show hire an all-color combination of ten musicians, itself uh, unusual, but contrary to the usual arrangement, the band was placed on the stage and not in the pit. And I should point out that this is before Paul Robeson actually started his stage career singing spirituals. Uh, So so Al Jolson was really at the forefront of of what became an important movement. Here, blackface did not replace black bodies. It promoted them and allowed bonds of conviviality across racial lines. There's not time here to fully analyze Jolson's performance style, but one key to his success was his ability to go in and out of character. One moment, he was Al Jolson, the Jewish performer. The next, he was in the role of the African-American jockey. He was crisscrossing and playfully demolishing the color line which Jim Crow laws did their best to maintain and reinforce. To further his critique of Jolson, Rogan claimed that Jews had almost entirely taken over blackface by the early 20th century. He's suggesting here that African Americans had rejected a practice they found demeaning while Jolson and other Jewish comedians, such as Eddie Cantor, resisted. However, even a casual look at the black press in the late 1920s shows that this is not the case. The use of blackface remained a well-established convention among African-American comedians. When blackface comedian Sammy Russell, also known as Bilo, played the Gibson Standard Theater in Philadelphia in May 1928, he was billed as the funniest man on earth. Sandy Burns, also known as Ashes, came to Philadelphia with a company of comedians six, six weeks later. Above a picture of Burns in blackface, a newspaper advertisement likewise ballyhooed Ashes as the world's greatest comedian. By early 1929, Burns and Russell had joined forces as Ashes and Bilo, 
and we're touring with a company of 35 people. If the above uh, assessment makes sense, then by putting on blackface, Jolson can be understood as putting on the mask of theater, specifically American theater, as much as the mask of race. The jazz singer can be said to be about many things, but one of the most fundamental is the struggle between tradition and modernity, between religion and secular public culture, that is, between the church or synagogue and the theater, between dress and rituals of worship and the dress and rituals of entertainment and popular culture. The law of the father is replaced by the law of the theater, that the show must go on, and perhaps some certain caveats, like there's no business like show business. People in the theater came from many religions with different customs, backgrounds, and beliefs. One had only to look at those who performed in front of Edison's kinetograph camera in 1894 to gain a glimpse of this world. They were from every part of the globe. American Indians, Japanese, British, Germans, French, Arabs, Irish Americans, African Americans, Mexicans, Latin Americans, South Sea Islanders, and so forth. In joining the theater, these performers joined an alternative secular religion, one that accepted anyone provided they shared that one commitment and belief that the show must go on. So here's uh, uh, imperial uh, Japanese dancers uh, who were appeared before the kinetoscope, uh, kinetograph. Um, so by the 1890s, the, what was uh, on the American stage uh, was incredibly diverse in its, in its background. The mask of theater and the nature of performance allows the Jolson character and others to escape from the timeless, unchanging role they were expected to become. They were expected to become and perform the role of Cantor. The theater frees Jakey Rabinowitz, now known as Jack Robin, and allows him to become a modern and an American. This does not mean that this mask enables him to escape the defining issues of race and ethnicity. Quite the opposite. By putting on this mask, the mask of theater, by becoming part of America and its public culture, he enters into a world where the color line becomes a conflicted and pressing issue. Identity has particular kinds of instability on the stage and in the movies. Like his character in The Jazz Singer, Al Jolson was the son of a cantor and rabbi who was born with the name Asa Jolson. There's a correspondence here, but both the actors, that is Jolson's, and the characters, Jackie Robin, use blackface differently from the kind of acting uh, in blackface that D.W. Griffith was using in the 1920s. Griffith had white actors fully assuming the role of black maids and butlers in One Exciting Night from 1922 and White Rose from 1923. These were for comic relief, and certainly they were demeaning. Al Jolson was always Al Jolson, Jack Robin, in blackface. He was never putting on the mask to become an entirely different character in The Jazz Singer. Let us further consider some of the other characters in The Jazz Singer. For instance, Jakey Rabinowitz's parents. Cantor Rabinowitz was played by Jewish-born Warner Oland, who played a wide variety of ethnic and racial roles, many in yellowface. Oland immersed himself thoroughly in the Talmud and kindred Jewish writings in order to properly play the cantor. Sarah Rabinowitz was played by the Catholic French-Canadian actress Eugene Besserer. Correspondingly, Jack Robin was romancing Shiksa Mary Dale, a nice waspy girl, but played by Catholic Mae McVoy. So there were different forms of cross-ethnic and racial mobility of multifaceted boundary crossings going on here. The jazz singer depicts ethnic, 
racial and cultural mobility at a point when, in fact, African Americans were themselves feeling a new sense of mobility, freedom, and possibility, particularly in the realm of culture and theater, with dramatic actors uh, such as Charles Gilpin and Paul Robeson starring in Broadway productions as well as appearing in race films. This mobility, limited as it was in practice, found phantasmatic expression in black spectatorship. As James Need suggests, it's not true that we identify only with those in a film whose race or sex we share. Rather, the filmic space is, subver- is subversive in allowing an almost polymorphically perverse oscillation between possible roles, creating a radically broad freedom of identification. Black audiences were not simply sutured into some kind of ideal, of some kind of ideological cultural trap. With black-white collaborations occurring on the stage and in film, racial and ethnic categories seemed more permeable and unstable. James Baldwin put it somewhat differently. No one I read somewhere a long time ago makes his escape personality black. That the movie star is an escape personality indicates one of the irreducible dangers to which the moviegoer is exposed, the danger of surrendering to the corroboration of one's fantasies as they are thrown back from the screen. It's impossible to ascertain the extent to which Jolson might have been an escape personality for African Americans who thronged to the jazz singer and the singing fool. As one black newspaper critic remarked somewhat tongue-in-cheek vis-a-vis the jazz singer, With all the Negroes trying to pass for white, it was nice to see a white man, that is Jolson, trying to be black for a change. That performers, white and black, use blackface suggests a kind of equivalency or interchangeability. When black newspapers asserted Jolson's debt to black entertainer Burt Williams, it was a way of reordering relations of authority and power. We don't have to be naive about racial politics and uh, racial politics on screen or off, but we do need to respect the reception that Al Jolson and the jazz singer received from black moviegoers and try to make sense of it. On the other hand, we have to wonder why Michael Rogan was so distressed by the jazz singer. He seemed to think that blackface was fostering an assimilationist melting pot ideology in which the Jewish Jolson, Jack Robin, is passing for white, which is to say wasp, and in a sense loses his identity as a good Jew. Now, given the fact that the film itself has quite a few scenes that take place in a Jewish synagogue, and that Jack Robin, that is Jolson, sings the Kol Nidre, this concern for a rejection of Jewish identity seems overwrought, if not misplaced. Rather, what we see is in Rogan's reaction to the film is a strong fear of creolization, of cultural and even biological mongrelization. He longs for a pure Jewish identity to somehow be ongoing. If Rogan focuses on the fact that Jack Robin dared to put on blackface and sing a mammy song, he may actually be more disturbed by the fact that he's dating a goy. If the reception of the jazz singer in black newspapers and theaters forces a reevaluation of the film, I now want to turn to examining the film's genealogy and its process of adaptation. Examining such a process can certainly illuminate the work's meaning, but before I do this for the jazz singer, I want to briefly describe an earlier film adaptation, one of that is relevant for the jazz singer because it involves Ernst Lubitsch, who was instrumental in the making of said film, in that the Warner Brothers brought the, bought the film rights to the jazz singer for him and planned to direct it. Ernst Lubitsch's Lady Wintermere's Fan is a self-evidently a radical film adaptation of Oscar Wilde's fame play, which sophisticated audiences might see as a brilliant comic duel between Lubitsch's visual wit 
and Wilde's verbal pyrotechnics. As many reviews of the film in the 1920s suggest, the film could be better appreciated if one knew the play. Interestingly, while Lubitsch claimed his film was a faithful adaptation, he did not use a single line of dialogue from the play. As critics noted, only a brilliant director such as Lubitsch would have been so audacious. The film both negates the play and is faithful at the same time. Fair enough. However, after happening to see the original 1916 film adaptation of Wilde's Lady Wintermere's Fan, directed by Fred Paul, for ideal films. I realized the actual process of adaptation had been much richer and more complex than people realized. Lubitsch's film was not only a radical adaptation of Wilde's play, it was a hidden remake of the ideal film, which was distributed in the United States by Triangle Film Corp. in 1919. Now, the potential wordplay in both instances was, I would argue, much appreciated by Lubitsch. Perhaps it was a kind of private joke. Because for, Pre- Fed, for Fred Paul had already discarded Wilde's dialogue. In this respect, Lubitsch was much more faithful to the ideal film than to the Wilde play. Moreover, within the play itself, what is hidden is what's closest to one's heart. Mrs. Erlein's secret that Lady Wintermere is her daughter Lord Wintermere's check stubs to Mrs. Erlein, which are locked in a drawer. Not to mention, of course, Oscar Wilde's homosexuality, which is kept in the closet. The play's triangle, Mrs. Erlein, Lord and Lady Wintermere, is echoed by the triangularization of adaptation in which Lubitsch and the film combine elements of an ideal motion picture and a wild play. That is, in his use of dual, for, uh, dual sources, Lubitsch expresses his double allegiance, treating theater and film equally when theory and criticism did much to keep them apart, in which theater, if you would, would be high culture and movies would be low culture. This utopic synthesis of the two would also hold for his ideal audience of theatergoers, whose knowledge of stage and screen would be both equal and encyclopedic. While shooting pickups in New York for Lady Wintermere's fan with Irene Rich, Lubitsch saw Samuel Rafelson's play, The Jazz Singer. This was shortly after it opened, and he saw it with the Warner Brothers, who would eventually produce the film adaptation. Now, Neil Gabler, author of An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood, lauds, lauds the Jewish-American Warner Brothers for tackling a subject of Jewish-American culture based on the experience of the play's author, Samuel Rafelson, who grew up on the Lower East Side, and the film's star, Al Jolson. Unfortunately for some of this argument, the Warner Brothers did not think much of the Rafelson play. It was Lubitsch who urged them to buy it the following year so he could turn it into a film. Lubitsch was again looking forward to creating another triangle, another instance of artistic mongrelization. This involved a play and a feature film that E.A. Dupont made in Berlin in 1923, Das Gazette, The Ancient Law. Although a quite fascinating film, The Ancient Law was never shown widely in the United States. It wasn't reviewed by Variety, and it was not reviewed in the mainstream press. Nor, um, in a way, it was obscure, hidden like the British film version of Lady Wintermere's Fan. Lubitsch, of course, never made The Jazz Singer. But this idea of a cinematic remake was obviously not a secret, for it's strongly reflected in the completed film. Fellow Warner Brothers director and New York-born Jew, Alan Crossland, a highly capable, if not brilliant, director, understood what Lubitsch was doing in a general way, 
Perhaps Crossland even got tips from Lubitsch uh, on the side as he was making the film. Textual comparisons strongly suggest that the ancient law was a reference point for him in making this film, even though we will obviously never see the brilliant masterpiece that Lubitsch would have likely made if he'd actually been able to direct. Here again we see a work that drew on both stage and screen for its antecedents. But what does it get us? For me, the discovery of this new intertext is important because it complements. I almost want to say it's dialectically related to the unexpected responses from African-American audiences. Lubitsch was crossing lines between high and low, low culture in one area, while Jolson was crossing boundaries, that is, the color line, in another. The Jazz Singer and The Ancient Law are two films about the theater and about the tension between timeless tradition as evidenced by the weight of Orthodox Judaism and the energy of modernity as expressed by the theater. However, both Samuel Rafelson's play, The Jazz Singer, which opened in September 1925 to mixed reviews, before the, uh, his play, uh, there was Rafelson's short story, The Day of Atonement, published in Everybody's Magazine in January 1922. The story contained the basic idea used in all three elements of the textual triangle, that the actor was, had gotten his big break, but his performance is to premiere on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We can only surmise, with varying degrees of certainty, the extent to which earlier texts were sources for later ones. It is thus possible that Rafelson's short story, The Day of Atonement, was one source for the ancient law, perhaps along with Mark Arnstein's Polish play, Singers, from 1903, which he later translated into Yiddish and was a well-known play, in which a 19th-century cantor leaves his town for Warsaw, where he becomes an opera singer. Forsaking his family and faith, it all comes tumbling down on the Day of Atonement. Certainly the dilemma is more credible when set in 1860s Vienna, as it is in the ancient law, than in 1920s New York, as it is with the jazz singer. It's hard to imagine any New York theater manager would be stupid enough to open a musical on such a night. In 19th century Vienna, it seems more credible. So E.A. Dupont could have borrowed the idea from Ravelson and made it his own. This includes making the father a rabbi rather than a cantor, and the son acting Shakespeare rather than singing ragtime or opera. If so, Dupont made other changes as well. Instead of having the father die at home a broken man, Dupont has the rabbi change. He reads Shakespeare and watches his son perform, only then realizing the error of his ways and dying in peace at his son's home. This ending is the reverse of the short story, where there is no reconciliation between father and son. It's also possible that Rafelson saw the ancient law, and this encounter inspired him to return to his earlier short story and turn it into a play. Certain scenes, such as Jack Robin in his dressing room, torn between going on stage or going to Sincola Nidre, are not mentioned in the short story, but evoke Dupont's film. Perhaps this is coincidence. Is it by chance... Uh, uh, but other things, uh, much, the much-increased tension between the father and son, the fact that the son has been declared dead by his father, are not in the short story, but are shared with the Dupont film. As with the princess in the ancient law, the girlfriend, now Mary Dale, takes on an entirely new narrative role as she discovers and promotes the aspiring performer. Assuming that this extensive borrowing was the case, and why not borrow since Dupont had seemingly borrowed from him, Rafelson's debt to the ancient law remained hidden, unspoken. What seems certain is that Ernst Lubitsch saw Dupont's film, 
DuPont was in the, in the United States after the success of his movie Variety and went to Hollywood. By March 1926, he was scheduled to make a film version of Romeo and Juliet. DuPont had actually apprenticed to Lubitsch, and as secular Jews and Berlin-based directors, they must have stayed in touch. It was in mid-1926 that the Warner Brothers bought the rights to Rafelson's Broadway play, and someone, initially Lubitsch, began to prepare a script that drew equally on both the Rafelson play and the DuPont film. How and what form the script or idea got to Crossland is unclear. Likewise, at what stage and how Crossland saw the ancient law remains a mystery, though like Baruch, Crossland began his career performing Shakespeare. This connection is only confirmed by comparing the two films. For instance, the emphasis on Jewish ritual in the synagogue is extensive and spectacular in both films and strikes one as quite unusual. Dupont's successful deployment and integration of this material into the ancient law must have provided a useful model for Crossland. Moreover, the two films shared many other moments or building blocks for their narratives. For starters, the ancient law served as a reference point for developing the the Rafelson's play's backstory. In two parallel moments, Baruch in the ancient law and Jakey in the jazz singer perform as youngsters, and each has his performance brought to an end by his father. In the ancient law, Baruch is caught and punished by his father for becoming a Purim actor. It's a kind of very spontaneous thing that he does, and everyone's waiting to see what his father's reaction is going to be. So he throws him, throws him out of the room. This gets translated into a jazz singer. Here's Jakey singing as a kid. And here's his father. So later, after both men have been inducted uh, into the theater world and are on the verge of their big break, both signal their commitment to this new world against the dictates of established religious practices by somewhat similar uh, gestures. Baruch cuts his side locks. in the process and becomes a, a kind of matinee star. So 
the corresponding scene in this jazz singer is a little different. As Jack Robin eats ham and eggs. Now, of course, I don't know if you about the story about the Warner Brothers, uh, but Jack Warner had a, a breakfast with his father one day, uh, and as a kind of sign of rebellion, ordered ham and eggs. To his surprise, his father followed his order with his own order of ham and eggs. And uh, so this is like a, a kind of inside joke, it seems to me, that uh, this going on here. But it absolutely corresponds uh, to, to what's going on in, in uh, the ancient law. So um, a crucial scene in both films is the moment that each performer is discovered by a powerful female patron. Princess Elizabeth Theresa watches Baruch's play Romeo, Baruch play Romeo in Romeo and Juliet, and is totally smitten. So here you have a kind of, you know, he's, this is a kind of third-rate theater company, which he's apprenticed himself to, and suddenly the company's asked to put on Romeo and Juliet, and he's been sort of rehearsing it, so he, he's the only guy who possibly can play Romeo in the, in the, in the group. Uh, it's sort of his theater debut. And uh, Princess Elizabeth Theresa that's there in the middle, her reaction is not necessarily shared by other members of the royal party. But again, you know, the, one of the differences between these two films is the way that E.A. Dupont lets things play out in a much more leisurely fashion, explores what's going on with secondary characters and around the scene and lets it build slowly as uh, the princess becomes more and more enchanted as others become more and more bored. So, you know, this is a kind of classic case of the slumming upper class going, going to see the, what goes on in the, among the hoi polloi, right? Uh, going down to Chinatown was what they liked, or going up to Harlem was, what, was one of the things that the elites used to do in New York. This is uh, the princess's uh, counterpart, but she's totally taken, as you can see. Reading Baruch line, his lines, obviously he hasn't had a chance to memorize them. I love the way these close-ups are sort of interspersed through the film, uh, through the scene, sort of begins and ends. And 
the same thing happens in uh, The Jazz Singer as he's uh, performing and Mary Dale comes for the first time and we get a nice close-up of her seeing him becoming enchanted. Coming home to the setting sun From the gate he'll start to run And then I'll kiss my boy Dirty hands, dirty face Little devil, that's what they say But to me, he's an angel of a joy So yeah, so you know the it's a much more concise scene. It's what goes on between him and Mary Dale is uh, is basically what it's it's all about. Um, as she watches him in a San Francisco dive bar. Likewise, the scenes in which Jack and Baruch are in their dressing room backstage, agonizing over the impossible choice between their religious heritage and their commitment to the law of the theater on Yom Kippur, between going to the synagogue and performing on opening night whatever the cost, have uh, uncanny similarities, unless it's the self-evident case of one providing the model for the other. So here we have the ancient law. Baruch is playing Hamlet. He's about to go on. This is his big, big break. And if he, he knows that if he doesn't go on, that his theater career is over. But of course, this is the Day of Atonement. So... He thinks back about his father. It's a kind of motivated cut. So we, we, we go back to, uh, to this, this moment of uh, pain and in which, of course, his father's also obviously feeling his absence. So, I mean, this is, you know, again, I think one of the powerful aspects of this film is the extensive cutaway, flashback, parallel editing. It's, it's you, the relationship between what's going on here and what's going on with Baruch is, can be interpreted in a number of ways simultaneously as a kind of some memory, a kind of parallel action. And then we return to Baruch. Obviously, DuPont really gives an opportunity for this to play out. This is a kind of crucial scene in the film. It's a kind of tour de force for the actor. Princess uh, Elizabeth 
Teresa makes a crucial appearance at this point, but she stays in the audience. It will be interesting to see how Alan Crossland and in the adaptation of the, from the jazz singer repositions her counterpart Mary Dale. So he's left alone with his thoughts until the man comes in and sort of says it's time to go on stage. So he takes the book with him. And so he goes to perform Hamlet. And the jazz singer Mary Dale's in the uh, in, in the dressing room, I think, allow which enables him to express things in words that are conveyed only through facial expression and, and action uh, in the ancient law. And also, we get to see Al Jolson actually put on blackface uh, from beginning to end, which is, I think, not something you. Uh, see too often putting on, but if you can think of it as putting on the mask of theater. at the photo of his mother just stops him in his tracks
And of course, one of the things about the jazz singer, as you must have noticed, is a lot of this is happening much more in close-up. Instead of a cutaway, we have this uh, sort of vision sequence, if you will. Instead of cutting away to the Father as in the ancient law. But it's obviously very much the same idea. And here, unlike some of the other earlier scenes, Crossland is willing to really play this out uh, and for all it's worth. And in that respect, I think it, it also shares something with the ancient law. Crossland's jazz singer draws equally and alternately on Ravelson's play in Dupont's film. Moisha Jodelson, the kibitzer and the jazz singer, looks very much like the wandering Jew, the snorer in the ancient law. They have a similar relationship to the father and also to the son, though one is the inside-out version of the other. Crossland does not always have Lubitsch's famed touch, but there are moments when his ability to find a third way would have pleased Lubitsch, even if Lubitsch had already sketched them out. This would include the ending. In DuPont's The Ancient Law, the father has a change of heart after reading Shakespeare. He comes to the theater where he sees his son perform. The rabbi realizes that his former pronouncements, declaring himself, declaring that his son was dead, were wrong. He staggers back to his son's elegant home and dies asking for his forgiveness. In Rafelson's play, the father dies without offering forgiveness, brokenhearted that his son has become an actor. With his death, the son gives up acting and sings Kolonidre at the synagogue. The mother survives, but it's not at all clear that her attitudes towards the stage are much different than her husband's. She also does not go to see his, her son perform. In the film version of The Jazz Singer, we see a third way. Jack Robin does not perform, but the opening is merely postponed while he goes to sing Kolonidre. The father forgives, and the mother, rather than the father, subsequently goes to the theater and sees her son perform. Instead of watching his son perform Schiller, Schiller's Don Carlos, about the relationship between father and son, in which the father kills the son, this in the ancient law, he sings Mammy, about his loving relationship to his mother. 
None of these are, strictly speaking, I think, happy endings, though critics have sometimes wanted to make them seem that way, as if the Warner film version was having it both ways. I do not think this is, strictly speaking, a fair assessment. What is more striking to me, at least at this point, is that the film version of The Jazz Singer ends differently than the other two works on which it depends, signaling its independence and originality. The jazz singer tells us something about the theater world and perhaps America, in which, for instance, the son of a poor cantor can meet and marry the daughter of a wealthy wasp lawyer. The theater was also a place where African Americans and whites could appear on the same stage together, and where black performers, like actresses, were theoretically paid what they were worth at the box office, though there were certainly complaints and doubts about this. As the jazz singer and the ancient law remind us, The theater often served as a kind of utopic space, not walled off from the outside world, but nonetheless a place where many things could happen that rarely happened anyplace else. This intertextual assessment suggests that Crossland's The Jazz Singer was not first and foremost about the black-white racial divide, and certainly not about Jews trying to pass for white at the expense of African Americans. Rather, it offered audiences a utopic vision of crossing racial, religious, ethnic, and media-specific boundaries and showed the way that a newly reconfigured theater could provide a liberating force over and against tradition. Timeless religious practices give way and must accommodate to secularism, modernity, and cosmopolitan culture in a form of multicultural interaction that is transgressive in a positive sense. At the same time, the rigid commandments of the theater must also be softened. Premieres should not happen on Yom Kippur. Sons should be allowed to, to suspend their performance and honor their parents in death. Even as children who become actors should not be deemed dead by rigid, sanctimonious fathers. This utopic aspiration, which has often been dismissed as sentimentality, was one reason why Americans, Jews, Catholics, Wasps, and, the African-American, and African-Americans flocked to the jazz singer in the late 1920s for it spoke to their circumstances and their aspirations, not against them. So what did the ancient law and the jazz singer tell us about racism and anti-Semitism in German and American cinema? In many respects, not much. At least they need to be contextualized. Cynthia Walk does this in her fascinating article, Romeo with Sidelocks. The ancient law is, she tells us, an extraordinary exception in German cinema of the period in that it imagines a world in which Jews become integrated into German society without losing their identity. Baruch ends up marrying his childhood sweetheart from the shuttle. The jazz singer, in contrast, is quite typical of American movies of this period. The amazingly successful play, A.B.'s Irish Rose from 1922, in which a nice Jewish boy and a Catholic girl marry and reconcile with their disapproving parents after the birth of their child, inspired numerous motion pictures of a similar nature and eventually reached the screen in 1928. Integration, symbolized by intermarriage, is a persistent theme in American silent cinema of the 1920s. The couple meet resistance, but it's overcome. Thank you. So thank you after this wonderful talk and presentation. And I think um, first um, we'll give everybody five minutes to bring in their own comments and um, how you, what is your perspective on, on this film and presentation? 
And Deborah, maybe you want to start. Well, I think the question before us is the question of the meaning of blackface and what does it mean to historicize blackface. Let us presume that Professor Musser's rendition of the African Americans of the late 1920s reacting positively to the film. He's brought us evidence. He, you can't, you can't tear up the newspaper articles, and yet. Uh, obviously, in our own climate today, blackface is viewed as horrendously racist. So if those things are both true, it seems to me the question is, how do we move between those? When is it that blackface becomes horrendous? Um, and what is the significance of discovering uh, that it was not seen as horrendous by the supposed um, victims of the time who were sympathetic with everything that L. Jolson was doing. Um, for me, that's a very, very difficult problem. How can I defend some? How can I defend something and not excuse it in the present? So it's a question of the shifting, the shifting uh, meanings of race. I'm going to leave aside here all the conversations about. Um, um, Jewish-Christian uh, integration. Uh, just leave those aside for a minute. But I just posed to the other panelists, well, what, and to Professor Musser also, what, what do we do with this gap between 1929 and the pre 1927 and the present? How, how do we bridge it? Um, I'd like to approach the topic um, by bringing up Flip Wilson and Tyler Perry. So in the trope and the transgression of going to minstrel and, and blackface, Flip Wilson in the early 70s created in his TV show uh, Geraldine. He was in drag, and there was no flack whatsoever in that transgression. Milton Berle did that you know, in, in the 50s, so that was acceptable. However, Tyra, Tyler Perry, with the character Medea in his films, he is catching some flack from uh, some people in the black community as well as in the progressive community that this is um, pandering. So it's not the quite fo same formula of the, of the taboo of Al Jolson in our time period, but essentially there's something about the sacredness of identity and when we become in a secular community so overwrought that, that there is a, an offense that's almost... Um, uh, like the 11th commandment. You, you are not allowed to appropriate my culture or my gender. So um, we're in a very difficult time period uh, on the, even in politics, about what you can say and what are you appealing or pandering to identity um, um, alignment. And what you can't make a joke if you are not of that culture. So I'm just going to hold for that, that thought. Cynthia, do you want to? I'm fascinated by the um, a different uh, subject that was touched on, that was explored in, in uh, uh, Charles Musser's lecture. Um, The, uh, what he called the triangularization of sources in uh, creating the jazz singer. Um, I'm, I'll come back to that, but I want to collect my thoughts. Okay. 
Charles, you want to, well, respond to that? Um, you know, like, like many things, uh, blackface is in some sense a construction, right? And, and I at least think I, I touched on actually three different ways in which it was being used. One by people like Griffith, uh, which I, I think one looks at and, and can understand was offensive to the black community at the time, although it's, it's really at the same time fascinating to the extent to which Griffith remained people... The black press was amazingly sympathetic to Griffith, given that he made Birth of a Nation. I mean, it was really very forgiving. But nonetheless, uh, you know, that, that use of blackface, the, the use of blackface by within the black community itself, and then, and then people like Jolson, who, who were aligned with. So, but I, I think what happens is in, in the 30s, it becomes sort of increasingly outmoded. And certainly after World War II, uh, with the rise of the civil rights movement, uh, I think blackface becomes more and more unacceptable. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's been decades where people get into trouble by, uh, you know, feel, feeling that they can play with this. And, uh, you know, we're at that point now. Uh, but, uh, of course, as I alluded to, you know, the, uh, it's the persistence of this, right, it turns out in Canada as well with, uh, uh, with Trudeau, uh, is, is really quite amazing. But it's sort of under, undercover. It's, it's sort of hidden, but then it pops up in yearbooks and uh, stuff like that. So, um, you know, so, so, so I, th- I think there's a shift. I, you can look for a, a p- other parallels to this, for instance, like Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom's cabin into the 1920s remains uh, a great play and and movie, uh, very uh, appreciatively reviewed and, and talked about in the black press. You know, the term Uncle Tom. I mean, Uncle Tom as a figure in the 1920s is still a sympathetic figure in the black press. You know, by the 1930s and certainly after World War II, that's gone, right? So, so there's a, there's this this shift is part of a larger shift in terms of the relationship between a certain kind of cultural heritage and 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 the black community. I, I, you know, um, I was just uh, looking at "Black Is Black Ain't" by Marlon Riggs. You know, and he he talks about the moment when he told his friend who was bigger than him, "You know, you're not colored, you're black," and he said that is like. Those were fighting words when I said that, you know, and he was going to beat me up until I said, well, my mother's black, too. And then he said, well, if you're going to say your mother's black, then. So so there's a there there is a way in which the construction of and, and, and what is, is acceptable. So I, I but I, I think you could link it particularly. It might be helpful to link it with Uncle Tom uh, and, and the way in which his character shifted from being sympathetic to being a kind of. Those would be fighting words now if you called some, a black person Uncle Tom. So when, when we look at this and uh, with your comments, um, um, we also, of course, have to look at sort of the historical, the historic periods here. And, um, and all of this happened in the 1920s, late 19... Oh, in, the first, in the first half of, of the 20th century, in the first third of the 20th century, and that is a time when um, these issues actually become sort of a matter of public debate. I mean, this is, of course, after the Civil War and uh, the end of slavery and, and, and these sort of issues, but 
we we have now moved much further along and sort of out of that moment, out of that time that uh, you you were uh, showing us here, um, a much broader debate has emerged and um, has become sort of a debate about uh, global affair, decolonization, I mean, all topics that um, at the time uh, were not on the same level as, as we have them uh, today. And so it may seem as if there is sort of a flip of issues that certainly suddenly things are being uh, sort of yeah, sort of um, standardized or tabooized. And, uh, and um, so often the, um, the response to this is in those days, things were much more tolerant. And in a, in a certain way, um, this may have uh, sort of seemed in, in uh, when, when you were saying in the very early moving pictures, mm. um, all sorts of people were sort of uh, in front of the camera, but isn't that also maybe, um, you know, sort of a short-sightedness on our part um, in, in the sense that um, um, we, we have moved on and, and sort of we are on, on a very different platform now than, than this was, um, yeah, basically 100 years ago. Well, you know, I, I think one thing is to keep in mind that uh, that that the the representations of race uh, were much more complicated in the teens and the twenties than people sometimes think. Right? That Griffith and Birth of a Nation is really sort of considered emblematic of how Americans thought about race, I and mean, it was the most successful motion picture of the silent period, and not to be dismissed. It, but at the same time. You know, there were there were, the the counterpart would be Uncle Tom's Cabin and other other films. So there was a range, uh, and 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 really a struggle around representation of race in in the teens and the twenties. And, and I think Al Jolson participated in that. On, on the other hand, I'd like to say too, though, that this idea that would certainly apply to Al Jolson of love and theft is something that continues today with rap singers. Right? It's just they don't they just don't wear blackface, but they. They sing like they're black. You know, they they appropriate black culture, uh, and and so you know this is this this is a this is an issue as well. I mean, uh, you know, is it appropriate? Uh, what happens when uh, you know when this happens? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole contrast between the term appropriation and the term homage is so it's so tricky because in the readings that I did on the jazz singer when my class um, uh, uh, viewed it last year, um, there was a, I don't know, if, I don't think it's in Rogan, but it's, it's in your article, but the notion that when he puts on, when Joseph puts on the blackface, he becomes more in touch with his being a son, and he sings this song to his mammy, and uh, I think there is a notion there that by, bec- by wearing the blackface, he's becoming a different actor, in fact, I think there are quotes from him where he says, I do my best acting when I'm wearing blackface. Now, that, to me, the way he puts it, is an homage to black, I'm not sure what the word is, black acting, black feeling, the notion that blacks are particularly emotional and that you know uh, whites have to escape this. So you could ask an interesting question. You know, w- Jewishness is not enough, Right? 
So he's put in this position where he has essentially, you could say, three choices. He could go back for Yom Kippur and be the good son, right? He can be a white man in a white world, but he's, got, he's doing something that's a third thing. He's a, a Jewish man in a white world, let's say, for purposes of argument, giving an homage to blackness. So there's really three ethnicities that are in the mix. And why is he drawn to this? Because it was not just in the jazz singer. It was not just that, uh, that uh, uh, Crossland writes the scene. Apparently, he performed quite often in blackface. And, I mean, maybe you know, if you do a reconstruction of all his different performances, both in film and in person, you know, what is the mix of the audience? Is he ever performing in blackface for a largely black audience? Is it for a largely Jewish audience? Or is it for a, you know, as it were, a white, a white Christian audience? It, it opens up another problem of fetish, fetishizing the other. And it's hard to go back in time to that, time, that, that period of American history. I wish we had an African-American on this panel to go to this very, very delicate issue because I think we were a little bit tone deaf. But you're just instantiating what you criticized when you first talked, that only the people from the group have the right to speak and that they have a hallowed opinion. No, not, it's not in giving the right to speak. It's to capture the greater dimension of the problem, not the authorization of the, of the opinion. I, I think we have a blind spot, that's all. Uh, and I also wanted to bring up Step and Fetch It, and Amos and Andy, Amos and Andy, the radio show, and then it crossed over to, as a TV show, and it was very popular, perhaps more for white audiences than for black audiences. Uh, it still was not considered as offensive back in 1958 as it might be today when people look at those, those videos or those audio tapes. So there's a, it's pandering to what is the cultural appetite and I also want to bring up one other thought. It's not about cinema, but in the 1960s in the civil rights movement, African-Americans and Jews had a great coalition. And the death of three civil rights workers, activists in Mississippi, uh, the murder by the KKK, we lost that coalition. I'm Jewish. We lost that vital coalition by the end of the 1960s with the rise of the Black Panthers and other issues that created a divide with that alliance. And it hasn't been repaired since then. And it was very much in effect in the 1920s. I mean, a, a lot of the financial support for the NAACP right. came from uh, Jewish funders. Um, I, I just want to reiterate the, that, that the mask, uh, the, the blackface, the way I think it's appearing in The Jazz Singer is the mask of theater, as much he's putting that by putting on the mask of theater, it, it is also liberating. Uh, you know that that you know that when you can, that, you know I think the notion of a mask is sort of lost to us increasingly with cinema, uh, where there's a certain kind of realism, right? We assume that acting, uh, but I, I think still in the in the tw in the twenties, uh, it, it could be read uh, more readily in as as a mask of theater than it, than it would be today. Well, I want to bring up another topic, and uh, you've briefly alluded to that, and which is the question of audience, and uh, I think the relationship between audience and the stage. And um, 
that at I mean this the stage and the audience has always existed in the theater, but film suddenly is a different uh, is is a different medium and um, and when we look at um, how that relationship functions today, where the audience um, is sort of appealed to for a much more interactive. I mean, it's not such a strict division any longer. Um, and especially when we talk about social media and rap music and uh, things like that, the, the relationship has changed. It is much more fluid. And, and so in, in, in what sense are these, these, um, these films also important on creating sort of a certain image that has not been appropriated by the audience, but the audience is sort of confronted with these things. And maybe sort of, is that also a question of the astonishment um, that the audience has over what they are suddenly seeing there in moving pictures um, that has sort of gotten lost and we have a different relationship to uh, what is presented to us. Yeah, I wanted to ask Cynthia a question, and that has to do with the scene in Das Alte Gesetz when Baruch is about to play Hamlet, mm -hmm. which is, of course, about self-doubt and fatherhood. You can see the Shakespeare and in the, in, the, uh, in the movie. And he takes out the sidur and prays himself. Yes. How do you interpret that scene? Uh, I think at that moment, uh, Baruch is not simply lost in thoughts, as you suggest. He is actually uh, using that moment before he's, he goes on stage to perform the rituals of Yom Kippur. And as someone said, he davens. He takes his prayer book out, he reads the prayers, and he davens. And then when he stands up, uh, he takes the prayer book and he puts it over his heart, under his costume. In other words, yes, in, as, a, as, a, as an actor, he must perform on, on Yom Kippur. Uh, but he, uh, and that, that's his public obligation. But he does so um, as a believing Jew. And with the, t the testimony is, 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 is the Siddur mm -hmm. under his costume. So do you see a parallel moment in The Jazz Singer? Or do you see no, a parallel I, moment? No, I, I think uh, they're quite different, as, uh, the, the two films in The, in, in, in the Dressing Room. Um, uh, the, the, um, the conversation with Mary mm -hmm. uh, does not give him room, if you will, to move into uh, the, 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 this... this exercise of, 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 of religious devotion. Um, he speaks about um, his family, his father, his, 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 uh, his, uh, uh, Well, but in the next scene, he, I mean, he doesn't go on. See, that's, you know, he doesn't go on. And in fact, he goes to the synagogue and he does sing, yes. right? So, yes. so actually in that sense, you, you point out the ways in which I would say they're, they're more parallel. You know, uh, I mean, because because they both they, they both. So he's preparing. For it's that. it's like 
the whole scene is not played out, right? We, we stop. We don't see him leave. We don't see him. We don't actually see the decision, which is that he's not going to go on, right? So, so it's different, and yet it's, it seems to me it's, it's, it's working through in a slightly different way what, what's going on in the ancient. Well, I, mean, I like your interpretation. It's much more nuanced than, uh, than, than what I've been thinking. But it's of, but leading. Your point is it's leading to the same place. Right. Um, yeah. and, and you know, seeing his father in the mirror, which is, is which happens actually fairly late in that scene, yeah. is very much like when Baruch is really thinking about his father, and we cut back to his to his father. And but that is parallel montage. That 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 uh, is not his vision, uh, as I interpret it. That is simultaneous action. Because that's really happening in the shtetl right. at the same time. This is Yom Kippur, and in the shtetl, the father, the father is is uh, calling. Uh, but but the, the powerful thing about mm-hmm. cinema is it can be both. It can right? be both. It's not. I mean, that's not real, right? In that sense, you can't literally. Mm-hmm. That's not what he. But it's it's like as if mm-hmm. that's what he's he's imagining. He's it's like there's time travel, or there's this, you know he's able to. It's. It, you know, it, it's totally ambiguous for the audience. The audience can do with it what it want, what it yeah. wants. Right. It is simultaneous, and at the same time, he's intuiting it. Right. Okay. Well, I'm now going to introduce the conclusion of our talk, which is Dr. Eric Mitchell, our wonderful director of the library. And uh, everybody, please join me in giving our great panel a round of applause. Thank you so much. So a big char- thanks to Charles and to Cynthia and everybody who's joined us tonight. Um, on behalf of the library and our Jewish Studies program, I just want to thank you all for attending uh, this evening's Holocaust Living History Workshop. As uh, you all appreciate, and Deborah said earlier, we really rely on you to sustain this incredible program, and we really appreciate your support. Uh, tonight's event was sponsored by the Leo Beck Institute and the Sunrise Foundation uh, for Education and the Arts. Thank you very much. Uh, Support was also provided by the African-American Studies Minor Program and the Film Studies Minor Program here at UC San Diego. So please join me again in a round of applause in thanking our sponsors. And as you've heard, I hope uh, this event is part of the Year of German Fellowship. So thank you. Thank you, panel. Thank you, audience. And have a wonderful evening.